Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's accelerated degree programs. Our six- and eight-week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in informatics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hello, and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Jason Goodger, commissioning editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. In a recent documentary, the Australian actor Chris Hemsworth discovered he is at a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's after taking a series of genetic tests that predict the risk of future disease. It turns out he carries two copies of a gene that predisposes carriers to developing the disease. The news came as something as a shock to him, and has led to him taking a break from acting to concentrate on his health and future. But how accurate are genetic tests? Should we all be having them? And what can we do if we're genetically predisposed to certain illness and disease? In this episode, I speak to Sir Peter Donnelly, Professor of Statistical Science at Oxford University and the founder and CEO of Genomics PLC. He tells me exactly what genetic screening can tell us about our health and what we can do to stay healthy, regardless of our genes. So in the documentary series that's just running now on Disney+, Plus, the actor Chris Hemsworth took a genetic test that flagged him up as being at a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Um, and after finding this out, he's, he's taken a break from acting um, and to think about his health and his future. So obviously this throws up a lot of questions. But I think the best place to start is let's have a look at the tests themselves. So say I'm going to have one. What happens, you know, and, and how do I go on about having my genes analysed in this way? There are different um, ways of getting that kind of testing done. Quite often it would happen in a medical context if people were thought to be high risk or if they had uh, disease running in the family where we know there's a strong genetic component. Then the, the, in the UK, the NHS, but, but doctors could order the right genetic tests. But it's sometimes uh, possible to get these done in other ways, from commercial companies. Usually, they would involve taking a sample, a biological sample from the individual, typically either a blood sample, which is a bit more common for medical tests, or a saliva sample. 
And then that would be sent to a laboratory. The laboratory would take the DNA out of either the blood or the saliva and then analyze it uh, at the, for the piece of genetic information that the test is trying to find. Yeah, so you mentioned there that sometimes these tests are done on the NHS, sometimes they're done by private companies. I mean, uh, is that the same if you take one on the NHS or if you take it from a private company? Is, are you having the exact same test? There are different technical ways of measuring the, the bits of DNA you need. Um, so different companies, I mean, some of which may be supplying the test to the NHS and some would be doing it commercially, they may not use exactly the same experimental technique, but they're all trying to measure the same thing. They're trying to measure either specific things or in some cases, many things in our DNA. Um, and they, they will have been shown to be reliable ways of measuring that. So they're measuring the same thing. They sometimes do it in slightly different ways. Yeah, so we're talking about DNA, we're talking about genes. So let's sort of start from basics there then. So in in Hemsworth's case, we're talking about just a couple of genes. But what's the human genome, you know, how big is the human genome? You know, what are we talking about there? So um, the our DNA is the chemical material which which contains all of the information that our cells use to do their stuff, to um, make the proteins that make them function, to, to build up uh, tissues and organs and, and eventually people. We get one copy of our DNA from our mother and one from our father, um, the one from our mum through the egg and the one from our father through the sperm. The totality of the DNA is called our genome, so that's just a, a word for all of the DNA. The DNA itself is a long chemical and it's made up of different components. You can think of it as a long list. And at each position, there's one of four possibilities. So four different chemicals make up the DNA. They happen to start with letters A, G, C, and T. So you can think of DNA as a long set of instructions written in an alphabet that has four letters, A, G, C, and T. Our English alphabet has 26 letters. Um, And in total, we get three billion letters of DNA from our mother and 3 billion letters of DNA from our father. So each of us, in every cell in our body, we've got those 6 billion letters. So that's obviously a huge a huge number. So we're talking about analysing the fine detail of this, if we can call it a genetic sequence, is that correct? Correct. So how, how do we go about doing that then? That seems like a, like a hell of a job. Yes, yeah, so uh, there are ways now in which you can measure all read all three billion letters or in fact because we've got we've got two copies of it we've got one from our mum one from our dad at any one of those positions we'll have two different or maybe two copies of the same dna letter the one we got from our mum and the one we got from our dad so there are experimental experimental technologies now called uh, whole genome sequencing which read all three billion letters there are other technologies which read uh, the subsets of the letters in genes and we could talk in a minute about what a gene is Um, or there are ways of just measuring one position or just measuring a small number of positions or a small region of the DNA. And we can think of them as just sort of different experimental approaches. Yeah, so you mentioned there, that was was going to be my next question. When we're talking about a gene, you know, what exactly are we talking about? So a gene is a piece of our DNA uh, where the letters in the DNA contain explicit instructions that help our cells make a protein. Um, Proteins are made up of building blocks called amino acids, and there's a code. Um, In the gene, there are three 
genes are read in, in, in segments of three letters, and each set of three letters codes for one of the 20 amino acids. So you can think of the machinery in our cells as going along, reading the first three letters and working out what amino acid that is. And there's other machinery that gets that amino acid and sort of gets it ready. And then it reads the next three letters, and then the machinery gets the next amino acid and they join together. So, so a gene is a set of letters that tell our cells how to make a specific protein. Um, and, and they can, they differ in length. So a gene might be hundreds or a few thousand DNA letters long, but some genes are much longer than that. Now, our DNA, if we look at the totality of our DNA, only about 1% of it is the genes. The rest of the DNA, which used to be called junk DNA, we now understand a bit, we called it junk DNA before we understood what it was doing. Um, we now understand more about it, but not everything about it. That has other information. For example, there's information in the rest of our DNA, which tells a particular gene when it should be making that protein. You can imagine if, the, if there's a gene, all of our cells have all of our genes. So there might be some gene which is making something that's really important in the retina, in, in our eyes. That protein might be very important in the retina, but you absolutely don't need that protein in your tongue. And so there's instructions in the DNA that will be able to tell that gene, I want you to make this protein if you're sitting in a retina, but the same protein in your tongue won't be turned on. So is that what you mean when you talk about gene expression? That's exactly, yeah. So gene expression is the technical term uh, for, as it were, when you turn the tap on and the machinery starts making the protein associated with that gene, technically we would say that protein, that gene is being expressed. So in, in this particular circumstance that we're talking about with, uh, with Hemsworth, so he's, been, he's received this test and they've picked out two specific, well, a single, two copies of a specific gene. You know, how, how big an influence can just, just a single gene have on, on, our, on our bodies and our physiology? We, we've got about 20,000 genes in total. Um, and you're right, in um, Chris Hemsworth's case, they looked at, they probably looked at many, but the results he's been uh, talking about and the significant ones relate to one particular gene called APOE. Um, and we know some things about that, what, what that does, but not, uh, you know, there are many mysteries, as there are with lots of uh, human biology. Um, he has, we all have two copies of that gene. We got one copy from our mother and one from our father. The issue is that there can be slight differences between the copies I have and the copy you have, or even between the copy I got from my mother and the copy I got from my father. Lots of these differences um, don't make any difference at all to us but some of them can have consequences. Sometimes those consequences can be really severe. So there are conditions, cystic fibrosis is an example, where if you inherit a mutated copy of a gene, so a version of a gene that doesn't work uh, the way it's meant to, you can end up getting really sick. Uh, sometimes if you have one copy of a gene which doesn't work, you're fine because you know if the one from your mum doesn't work, but the one from your dad is fine, often people will notice no consequences. But, but sometimes that does matter. And then in other cases, if you're unlucky enough to inherit a changed version from your mum and a changed version from your dad, there can be serious consequences. So at one extreme, there are a whole range of conditions. Thankfully, they're usually very rare, where if you inherit a mutated copy of the gene, or in some cases, two of them, they're called recessive diseases, um, you get very sick. 
Cystic fibrosis is one of them, but there are now many, many others. Um, in other cases, and this is the case in, in Chris's example, if you have a changed version of the gene, it doesn't definitely mean you'll get sick, but it can make it more likely, or in some cases, less likely that you'll get sick. With, again, with a specific disease. That's something I'd like to come back to in, in a little bit, but we're talking about um, mutations of genes. So how does a gene mutate? You know, why, how does that happen? Why does that occur? So we inherit one copy of our DNA, literally one copy. There's one copy in the sperm and there's one copy in the egg of all of these three billion letters. And now every cell in our body has, and there are trillions of them, have um, a copy of our DNA. So one thing our cells have to do is to make copies, sort of like a, a photocopy or a copy and paste thing. Uh, it has to make copies of our DNA. The machinery for doing that is remarkably good but sometimes mistakes will crop in. And so if one of those mistakes crops in, you know, I might inherit a particular version of a gene from, say, my father, um, and uh, maybe I inherit the same version from my, my mother. But in the copying process, um, the version that gets passed down will have been copied, that I pass on to my kids, will have been copied many times from that. And some errors crop in, uh, some errors crop up. And those errors um, are what introduce these changes. And so if we look, if we sort of compared your DNA with my DNA, or even one copy of your DNA with another copy of your DNA, we, our DNA would agree at about 999 places out of 1,000. So they're very, very similar. Uh, it's worth knowing that if you compared uh, my DNA with a chimpanzee's DNA, and just to be clear, the same is true of yours, if you compared our DNA with a chimpanzee's DNA, they would agree at 99 places out of 100. So there's a lot of similarity, but these places that are differ, they all arise because of these chance errors in, in copying. Many of them then get lost from population, so I inherited, but it doesn't get passed on, or maybe a few of my descendants have it, but it, it, just by chance, because we only, although we get two copies, we only pass on one. So there's a sort of randomness that happens at a shuffling in every generation. Uh, some of them survive in populations, some of them get to be more common, um, and some of them don't. And most of these changes, so, you know, the, the one in a thousand where we differ, most of them have little or probably no impact on us as individuals. But some of them can be important. So we're talking about um, ones that cause illness or disease here, but can these mutations ever be beneficial? Yes, they can allow the individual to do certain things it needs to do better or more effectively. And indeed, that's what natural selection is. Darwin's idea was that these variants arise by chance, but if they make the organism better adapted, to use a technical term, better able to do its thing, then they will tend to be more successful. The individuals carrying those organisms will have more offspring. Uh, sorry, the individuals carrying those mutations will have more offspring, and then the offspring, will, the, the mutation will get more and more common in the population. So mutations can be beneficial. Most of the time, they either don't have any effect or they're bad for us, um, but sometimes they're beneficial, and that's, that's the bedrock of natural selection. It's these chance mutations that arise that then increase in frequency because they confer an advantage on the organisms that carry them. So as we're saying, there's, there's a, you know, a, an incredible amount of genes and an incredible amount of data in, in these tests, you know. How accurate are they? You know, how certain can we be if a result comes back that that is, that is a fact? 
they're very, very reliable. I mean, it's not, it's not that there are never errors. I mean, sometimes errors will be because samples are swapped in the lab. It's not because of the measuring process. But these tests are, uh, we're now very good at being able to measure DNA. So in, in the documentary, um, Hem- Hemsworth is told that he's, I think it's eight to 10 times more likely to develop Alzheimer's due to this genetic factor. I mean, initially, that sounds like a huge difference. You know, it's a bit shocking, 10 times, but we're working from a base level of risk, aren't we? So what I'm saying is he's not necessarily definitely going to develop Alzheimer's. No, that's exactly right. Um, As I said, there's there's a spectrum. Um, There are some diseases where if you inherit the genetic change, you will get sick. There are other examples, and this is one of those, uh, where if you inherit a particular genetic change, you can be more likely, sometimes quite a bit more likely, to develop the disease. And then actually for most of the common conditions, uh, most diseases like heart disease and diabetes and, and many of the common cancers, genetics is a big part of the risk, but it's not one change or two changes. It's millions of positions which each contribute a tiny bit to that risk. So his example is sort of in the middle where, as you say, he is uh, probably about 10 times more likely to develop disease. And although we're all very aware of a disease like Alzheimer's, uh, it's quite rare. So there's a big difference between relative risk, which is how much more likely you are than someone else to get the disease, and absolute risk, which is about whether you'll actually get it. So if a disease is incredibly rare in the population, you can be much more likely than somebody else, and still it's extremely unlikely that you'll get the disease. So the the first important point is it doesn't determine that he will or won't get the disease. It just increases the risk for him. So you mentioned there are other diseases such as uh, heart disease um, and cancer, etc. So are these types of genetic tests better at picking up risks for certain diseases than others? I think the way I'd put it is there are different types of genetic tests. There are some examples like uh, Alzheimer's disease where we know there's one specific gene we should check. And indeed, there are only a few places in that gene which, which we need to check. And that can be very informative. For a disease like heart disease, there are some rare examples where specific positions have an impact. But in general, what we've learned over the last um, five or 10 years is that genetics is, we've known for 50 years that genetics is a major risk for heart disease. What we've learned recently is that it's not one place or two places or 10 places. There are a million places in your DNA. And every one of those contributes a tiny bit to your heart disease risk. So at one place in your DNA, if you have an A in the code rather than a C, it might bump your risk up by half a percent. Now, you don't really care about that position by itself. And at another position, if you have a G rather than a T in the DNA code, it might decrease your risk by a percent. And again, that's not a big impact. What's changed and what I think is really exciting for the field over the last few years is for the common diseases, we can now we now know which positions to look at, and we can measure them all individually, actually quite cheaply, and then combine their effects. So instead of knowing about one change, the combination of these million positions is what we call a polygenic, poly because there are many of them, but a polygenic risk score. And those scores, you can think of those scores as sort of overall summary of your susceptibility to a particular disease, and they can have big impacts. There are, you know, there are 20-fold differences in, in disease risk for heart disease, because people have a high polygenic risk score rather than a low one. Um, for diabetes, it's it's more, it's larger than that. Um, for some of the cancers, you know, it can be that order as well. 
So we're now knowing for all of the common diseases, there's a new type of genetic test, this polygenic risk score, um, which allows us to understand the risk, which previously we, we, we knew was there, but we couldn't really measure. Right. So if I were to take one of these, I could get um, you know a, a sheet back detailing my risks of these specific diseases. Or at least telling you the genetic component of your risk. So heart disease is a good example. Um, there are other factors that affect your risk of heart disease. Your age, whether you're male or female, your weight, your cholesterol level, your blood pressure, and so on. Um, and actually, at the moment, doctors already use those factors uh, when you're too young. But when you get to a certain age, doctors already use those factors to estimate your risk of heart disease. And if it's high enough, they will then have a conversation with you about things they can do, about prevention programs, or in this case, statins, um, which reduce your cholesterol. What we'll be able to do in the future, we can just do that much better because we can now capture the genetic component as well, and it's substantial. So for, so for men between 45 and 55, that genetic component, which we can now measure, captures about the same amount of risk as all of those clinical risk factors put together. So it's just about, it's about for the first time, being able to use and measure the genetic component of risk to just do a much better job of working out who's at high risk and who's not at high risk. Because for most of the common disease, we come back to Alzheimer's, but for most of the common diseases, there are things health systems can do. If you're at higher risk for a particular cancer, there are screening programs, and maybe you should start them a bit earlier in life or have them more often. Um, for other diseases, there are prevention programs, or there are sometimes drugs you can take to reduce your risk. So I think it will be a very profound change in healthcare. We're just going to be much better able to get the right people into the right screening programs and prevention programs. At the moment, there are lots of people who are at high risk for disease who are completely invisible to the NHS. And this gives us a chance to, to bring them to light. And there, are, as I said, there are natural pathways and things you can do for most of the diseases. That's really interesting because a lot of, um, when I've been talking about this to other people, lay people, uh, my friends and family, et cetera, they've all, all said to me, oh, you know, I don't know if I'd want to have that test done because it would trigger in me um, anxiety and I'd get really wound up and, uh, and worried about it. And is there anything I can do about it? But what it seems to, um, that you're saying there is, actually, it's a great thing to know that you're predisposed to a disease. It depends a bit on the disease and it depends a bit on how big the impact is. So in the case of Alzheimer's disease, the, the, the gene that's called APOE that was checked for Chris Hemsworth that has quite a big impact on, on his risk of getting the disease. And at the moment, there's not very much you can do about it. So I, I think, uh, as you were describing in, in talking to people you know, different people take different views. Some would rather know and some would rather not know. And that's absolutely up to the individual. I, I think in Alzheimer's, actually, research is progressing really quickly. There was good news yesterday about the latest drug trials for Alzheimer's. Um, so it might well be the case before too long that indeed there are things that you could do and there might be drugs to help reduce the risk or, or, or catch it early enough to slow down its progression. But for many, many other, so, so a disease like Alzheimer's where currently there's nothing you can do, I think that's a slightly different question from diseases you know, like some of the cancers where there are screening tests you can have. That, that you, take breast cancer as an example. Um, women in the UK are offered mammograms every three years when they get to age 50. There are some women who are at, at high risk of breast cancer much earlier in life. They could be having 
they could, I mean, it doesn't happen currently because we don't know who they are, but we could measure, we could find out who they are and offer them mammograms earlier. So I think where there's something you can do, and in many cases we do these anyway um, on the basis of risk, it's just about doing it more effectively. This might be a daft question, but something I've just thought of. So Chris has got these two genes. Can they can they change over a person's lifetime so that it will change from, you know, has it mutated in the first place? Can it mutate to a more benign variation? No, it's a really good question. The, everything in biology is complicated, but the sort of short version of that is no. The things you inherit uh, stay the same throughout your life. There will be occasional changes, but uh, it, what matters for this gene is is what it does in the brain. He will have many, 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 many brain cells. We all do. Um, he'll have many brain cells, and they will all, or almost all of them, will have this change in them. Maybe there'll be one or two that have had these chance changes in the in the DNA through the copying errors, but uh, but virtually all his brain cells will have the same copies that he inherited. So we can't. It doesn't change by chance through our life. And although there is new technology that could potentially change genetic material, you have to change it in all the relevant cells. And that's a really, I mean, there are massive ethical issues anyway, um, which I don't want to minimize, but it, it's technically very difficult because you, you've got to change lots and lots of cells. That was what I was going to ask next. With We hear a lot about um, think tech, gene editing techniques such as CRISPR. And is that you know, you know, how close are we to being able to correct, if that's the right word, or or at least modify a person's genes if they, they if they have this genetic predisposition to Alzheimer's? Let's say, I mean, is is that something in the near future, or is that way off? I think it might it might be kind of medium term. It's not near future, uh, and I think for something like Alzheimer's, where we're talking about brain cells, we'd want to be particularly careful. Um, but that ability to change bits of DNA, you can sometimes, so for example, there are some conditions that arise because your body's not making a particular protein, because the copy of the protein you inherited is sort of, the copy of the gene you inherited is broken, so you just don't make the right version of the protein. So there are therapies now for some diseases which try and um, encourage other cells to make the right protein or to add the cells in which make the right protein to sort of make up for it. Um, so that's a slightly easier case where there's something that your body doesn't have and you could encourage or give someone some cells which do make it even, I mean, that's sort of cutting edge and we're just working out how to do that. But changing all of the cells in someone's brain is, is I think, realistically a long way off. So sort of uh, by way of summing up, do you think we'll ever see a day where we have entire populations routinely having tests like these and if so what would be the value in that i think that will happen um and it's for the reasons we were talking about a minute ago for all the common diseases i mean first of all it should be up to individuals no one should be forcing individuals for this but for most common diseases genetics is a risk factor and if we knew about it we would know for each individual for each of us Instead of just saying, you know, here are the sort of 10 or 20 diseases you should be most worried about, and here's some generic advice, we could be saying, in your case, Jason, you're at particularly high risk of heart disease. We can actually tell you this when you're in your 20s, so you should work even harder on diet and lifestyle. Maybe it's appropriate to go on, on drugs to reduce your cholesterol a bit earlier in life. We could do that because we have that special information about you. Uh, if, if 
they were a woman and we knew she were at high risk for breast cancer, we could suggest that she had she started having mammograms earlier in life and that will catch any cancers much earlier, they're much easier to deal with, the outcomes are much better. I think these approaches can change the way we do prevention in healthcare. I mean, you can think of them one way as, well, it's just about, we do screening and we do prevention, we can just do it much more effectively. If we're better at knowing who's high risk and who's low risk, we try and do that now, we can just do it better. But I think from a health system point of view, you know, health systems like the NHS, which are creaking currently, and it's not just our health system, that's true of most health systems where costs go up and up and up. Many people have argued that if we can, they're not really health systems at the moment, they're sick care systems. They wait till people are really sick and then look after them. If we could move the dial a bit and get much better at stopping disease before it happens, that's obviously good for us as people, but it's great for the health system because you're avoiding disease or you're you're dealing with it earlier when the costs are lower and, and everything's easier. So I think it's potentially hugely important. And I suspect, as I said, no one should or will ever be forced for this. But I think the ability just to have, for most diseases, these are risk factors. They're like cholesterol measurements. And they won't determine whether you get a disease, but they'll change the odds a bit. And if we can do that and we get a better, better estimate of disease, that's quite helpful. We've just finished a trial um, in the northeast of England with GPs where they added in that they currently estimate risk for cardiovascular disease with this tool which combines age and sex and blood pressure and cholesterol and so on. Um, and in the trial, we added in the genetic component of risk. And actually, it was hugely, hugely positive. Um, the GPs involved uh, were very positive. 95% of them said it fitted in well with their they and their nurses said it fitted in well with their with their standard workflows because GPs are currently extremely busy, so we don't want to make that worse. Um, the individuals, the patient, both the GPs and the patients, were very positive about the idea that they actually they have a better handle on the risk of that individual patient. They can give better advice to the patient. Patients were very positive about having the genetics used. Ninety nine percent of them said it was helpful. Um, Ninety four or five percent of them said they had no trouble understanding it. They were really positive. So, you know, so we've actually done the trial. We've sort of done the test in routine um, GP practices in England for one disease, for, for cardiovascular disease. Um, and people were very positive about it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was Sir Peter Donnelly. The current issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy wherever you buy your favourite magazines or visit sciencefocus.com. 